Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. On May 28, 2019, Aging Matters presented a program about organ donation and transplantation. In addition to hearing details about this topic, listeners also learned about Andy Bender, a Vietnam veteran who received a kidney transplant on March 20, 2019. Andy's wife, Betty, told Andy's story. Today, you will listen to a replay of that program. Stay tuned for an update about my guest at the end of the program. I hope you enjoy it. afternoon and welcome to another Aging Matters program on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. The growing population of healthier, older Americans is changing the way medical centers choose organ donation recipients. More patients older than 65 are being referred for and have access to organ transplantation. Also, there's no age limit for organ donation. People in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond have been and are signing up to be organ donors. Today, my guests are Jacolia Ellis, Manager of Media Relations and Communications at Washington Regional Transplant Community, and Betty Graves Bender, whose husband received a kidney transplant. Jacolia will talk about eligibility requirements for organ donation and provide information about organ transplantation. Betty will give some details leading up to her husband Andy's kidney transplant and his current status since surgery. So welcome Jacolia and Betty and thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Well, okay. Well, Let's get kind of an overview of organ transplantation and uh, donation. So we'll start with you, Jacolia. Let's talk a little bit about your organization. What is the Washington Regional Transplant Community and what's its role insofar as the organ donation and transplantation community? 
So the Washington Regional Transplant Community is the nonprofit organ procurement organization in the Metro Washington, D.C. area. And we're responsible for recovering and distributing organs and tissue that, tissues that are used in life-enhancing and life-saving surgeries. Um, our organization serves approximately 5.5 million people, uh, 44 hospitals, and we work with six transplant centers. Uh, in, a, in addition to our clinical work, we're really focused on educating the public about organ, eye, and tissue donation with the goal of increasing the number of registered organ donors so ultimately we can save more lives. And so as you heard in, and everybody else did too, what I said about eligibility to be a donor, it is changing. Are you discovering that and who is eligible to be a donor? Because I think that um, people might be surprised that older adults are becoming donors. Absolutely. So people of all ages and all medical histories should consider themselves potential donors. Your medical condition at the time of death will determine what organs and tissues can be donated. So you're never too old to save and heal lives through donation. Earlier this month at Washington Regional Transplant Community, a 79-year-old donated their liver that was used in a life-saving transplant surgery. And just last week, a 77-year-old donor donated her skin, which could be used to heal burn victims. Um, to date, the oldest local donor was actually 88 years old, and she donated her liver. And her liver was transplanted into a 67-year-old recipient. And that was in 2013. So at any time, that record could be beat by someone older than 88. So you can save lives regardless of your age, and that's the exciting part. And are so at your particular organization, I'm just curious, so are you finding out more? Uh, you're giving some examples. So is that part of the, the uh, your community outreach of encouraging more older adults to um, become donors? Absolutely. So we, always, we have more than 500 Donate Life ambassadors who are volunteers that work with our organization. And they're out in the community at health fairs, at churches, at different events, uh, and just letting people know, like answering any questions people have about organ, eye, and tissue donation and letting people know you are eligible. We often hear from people who say, oh, you wouldn't want my organs. You know, I had too many potato chips or, um, you know, I'm too old. And that's just not the case. I mean, we're seeing every single day that people of all ages, um, all ethnicities, everyone saving lives. What organs and tissues can be donated after death? So that's a good question. Deceased organ donors can donate their kidneys, lungs, the heart, pancreas, liver, and small intestine for transplant. And what that means is one donor could save up to eight lives, and that just shows the power we all have to make a meaningful difference for others. Uh, in addition to organ donation, we recover tissues, including the corneas, to restore sight, skin to heal burn victims, bones used in reconstructive surgery, and veins for heart bypass surgery. And one tissue donor can heal up to 75 lives. It's pretty remarkable. Remarkable. Yeah, well, and one thing that I, 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 this was one of the reasons why I wanted to do this show also, is is the idea, and, and I'm speaking for myself and, and my husband, that we actually have uh, an indication on the driver's license. What is, how does that translate then uh, if, if something happened to me and I died? And, and I want and I considered an organ donor. Can you explain what that process is as to how that translates then to that actually happening? 
Yeah. So people can register to be organi and tissue donors in a couple of ways. Um, one of the easiest ways is to visit our website, which is beadonor.org, and you can register whether you live in Virginia, D.C., or Maryland. You can register on beadonor.org. We see that the majority of people, actually 98% of people, register when they're at the DMV or the MVA, renewing their license or registration, uh, and they check a box indicating that they want to be an organ donor. Um, we also encourage people to have the discussion with your loved ones before you die. Let people know that your wish when you die is to be an organ donor so that your family members are not surprised in the hospital that this was your intent. Uh, to answer your question about how the process goes from there, hospitals in the Metro DC area are mandated by law to call Washington Regional Transplant Community when a patient is declared dead. And at that time, our clinical team will go to the hospital and assess the patient's medical condition at the time of their death to determine if they are even eligible to be a donor. Um, if we're all, we also check the registry to determine if someone was a registered organ donor because we're legally obligated to honor their wishes. If they are at that time, we'd have a discussion with their family members and answer any questions they have about the process. And this is really important. If someone was not a registered organ donor, but they are in a condition that would allow them to donate organs or tissues, we will still have that conversation with their family to give them that opportunity. We find that it really helps people with their grief and turn something out of so tragic, something so tragic into something good. And if, if a person, besides driver's license, are there other places that people can sign up to be an organ donor? So there is a national registry as well as state registries. So uh -huh. you can go to beadonor.org and register that way. Right. Or you can go to donatelife.net, which is the national registration. Um, also, people have advanced directives letting their family know. That okay. that's their intention. And give that site again just so that people can jot that down. What is it? Excellent. So our website for people in the Metro DC area to register to be organ donors is beadonor.org. And you can also go to donatelife.net if you live out of the DC area. All right. So the other thing that we often hear about is we're talking about death and the um, uh, donating an organ. But there's also the situation that an older adult who is still living, because as we've discussed before the show, older adults can be any age, uh, as far as I'm concerned, can they while they're still alive and continue to be alive, can they also be organ donors? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so what we're talking about is living donation and people in good health can donate a kidney or the lobe of their liver while they are alive. Um, these people are called living donors and in many cases they donate their kidney or liver to a family member, a friend, or a colleague who needs a transplant. Then this is really the amazing part to me is there's also living donors who donate their kidney to a stranger out of the generosity, you know, out of the goodness of their own heart to a stranger in need. So anyone who's interested in living donation should contact a local transplant center and they can inquire about the living donor program. Um, this is interesting. Last year, there were nearly 7,000 transplants per performed because of living donors. So almost 20% of transplants we saw in 2018 were from people who were alive. Well, and it just mm -hmm. goes to show you can live with one kidney. Mm -hmm. And what what's the other? So it's the lobe of your liver. So the liver regenerates. Yes. So you can give a segment of your liver to somebody else, and then it will regenerate in your body. Wow. And and per, again, it could be an older adult that does this. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. We see all ages. Well, just 
keep on living, right? <laughs> it's the gift. It's the gift of giving. Yes, exactly. Well, and of course, the other thing, and I know we're going to talk a little bit with this uh, um, with Betty later on, but just to kind of set the stage, so it's also possible that. People can be donors if they've had some kind of a medical condition or cancer. Tell us a little bit more about that because people might be concerned, well, for all of the reasons I'm old or whatever, but even a medical condition doesn't disqualify. Is that correct, Nicolia? Yes, we're seeing more and more people who might have been ineligible in the past that are now eligible to be organ donors. Um, how it works is our medical director will determine eligibility, and it's really on a case-by-case basis depending on the patient's medical condition at the time of their death and their medical history. And through recent years, there have been many medical innovations that have allowed more people to become organ donors who, again, in the past might not have been able to. Um, for example, patients who are hepatitis C positive are eligible to be organ donors, and those who are HIV positive can donate organs to be transplanted into HIV positive recipients. Wow. So it's it it you can do it even either either way too mm-hmm. is that you can if you have a medical condition if you are a donor and then that could also go to somebody as a recipient who has a medical condition is that what you're Correct. saying? Correct with HIV. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there any other kind of medical condition that um, a, a recipient would have, or is there sort of a discussion on that one? Yeah, everything is on a case by case basis, but I think that. Don't count yourself out, even if you have had cancer or other medical conditions, because science is changing every single day, and we're finding that we are able to transplant more people and more donors are able to give that gift of life. So don't count yourself out. We'll determine that at the time of death. One thing that I'm hearing you say, and I think it's really important, um, we t- t- uh, I'm, I'm hearing that we talk about organ, eye, and tissue donor. and. Um, it would be helpful to kind of explain the difference because we say organ donor and we think that kind of is just a generic term that kind of includes everything. So if, if again, I'm saying that on my driver's license I'm an organ donor, does that preclude me from, say, being an eye donor or a tissue donor? And, and what's the difference in terms of eyes and tissues versus organ and how is that differentiated? I think people need to sort of understand? Yeah, that's a good question. So when you make the decision to register as an organ donor and you check yes um, at the DMV on the paperwork or you go online to a registry, you are agreeing to be an organ eye and tissue donor. All right. Um, And in the hospital, again, depending on the manner in which you died, will determine if you're eligible to be an organ donor, to be a tissue donor, an eye donor, or all three. So it really depends on um, the circumstances of how that individual died, what their medical history is, and we've had patients all the time that after their death, they're able to, you know, donate their liver and heart, and then also they're able to give their corneas to restore sight to two people, and then they're able to give tissues, you know, their skin to heal burn victims. So we see all the time that we can really maximize the life-saving gift, and it's not just you're an organ donor or a tissue donor or an eye donor. You can be one of those, or you can be all three. And is there a difference in terms, because I think one thing that when we had our phone call, you kind of differentiated that organs may in some ways save lives, whereas in eyes and tissues, it's not necessary, necessarily 
saving a life, but enhancing life. Is, is, right. is that what you told me? Yes, yeah. absolutely. You're, so you're spot share on. Share that with all. Yep, you're spot on. So an organ donor has the potential to save another person's life. If you're someone that has heart failure, and if you don't get that new heart, you're going to die. Right. So organ donors have this amazing um, opportunity to save somebody else's lives. But tissue and eye donors have just as much of a remarkable opportunity because oftentimes you'll have an athlete that is injured and their career's on the line. We've seen this with the NFL players and they need ACL surgery. So they need tissue, you know, to help them with a knee repair. Or oftentimes um, you have an infant that just needs a new heart valve and that's a tissue donation. And so in many ways we say that tissue donation is life enhancing, but it can also be life saving because if someone is a burn victim and they have burns over over 90% of their body, that tissue is going to, to be life-changing and mean everything for their quality of life. So therein lies the difference, So, but it's nice to know you can be eligible for one, two, or three different possibilities, <laughs> right? One thing I think that, in fact, again, as I was looking to prepare these questions, I think people began to kind of get nervous about whether if they register as a donor, uh, an organ donor or tissue or eye, that somehow they're not going to get quite the same health care because it's kind of like the people outside are waiting to waiting for you to die, which I know is not the case. But I think it, it's important just to explain if someone is considering being an organ donor, what what the situation is insofar as when you get your usual health care. I mean, I think I, I'm assuming that perhaps in some ways the healthcare provider doesn't even know whether you're a, a donor mm -hmm. or not. Is that true? Absolutely. So your life always comes first. And in an emergency or critical care setting, when someone's rushed to the hospital and they need life-saving care, doctors are going to make every single attempt to save their lives. Um, but sometimes there is a complete and irreversible loss of brain function, and the patient is unfortunately declared clinically and legally dead. And only then is donation an option. And so the doctors that are treating that patient, they're not the ones that are having the conversation about organ donation. That's where our organization, Washington Regional Transplant Community, comes in and has that discussion, but not until death is declared. So these doctors are there to fight and save your life. They're not looking at your license or rifling through your wallet. It's just we hear that a lot. Uh, so I think it's important to, to discuss it, but it is a separate um, organization entirely that is going to do the organ donation recovery. And as you said, then it'll be a representative from your organization who comes to talk once the patient has passed away or there is no hope of, of continued life. Right, and only until that time. Okay. Uh, the hospitals are mandated to call us and we will come to the hospital when we receive a report of a death declaration, but only until that time these doctors are gonna fight hard to save your lives and we see amazing things that our doctors here in DC do to save people's lives. Right, and, and, and another thing I think that people get concerned about are funeral plans. Well, explain what that, that can entail. I mean, if somebody takes away all of your organs, uh, you know, what, what are the, what is the situation insofar as funeral plans? 
Yeah, the question we get a lot is, is an open casket funeral possible um, for organ, eye, and tissue donors? And it absolutely is. Um, Through the entire donation process, the body is treated with care and respect, and funeral arrangements can continue as planned following donation. So, you know, sometimes there will be questions as to, will this delay the funeral plans? And it does not at all. Um, we are able to to give these donors, these generous donors who are saving lives, the same funeral and memorial that they would have received. And I would imagine, too, that you, when someone is considering becoming an organ donor, these are the kinds of things that you talk with the potential donor and their family so that they understand all of this in advance. Is yeah, absolutely. Right? And this is why, again, we want people to make the legal and informed decision to register to be an organ donor. It's a very personal decision. Sure. And, uh, it's understanding that discussing our own mortality can be uncomfortable and even awkward at times for people. But let your loved ones know what your wishes are. And if you are a registered organ donor, know that we are legally obligated to honor those wishes and, and those life-saving gifts and honor your desire to save lives. And are there actually faith communities that have objections to organ donation? Uh, how does that work? I mean, we we think about this Washington area. We have such a broad, diverse array of cultures and faiths and this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Has, has your organization experienced some faith groups that perhaps uh, object to this, or what's the situation? So we've done a lot of research, and we find that all major Eastern and Western religions support organ donation. Um, These religious leaders see it as a final act of compassion and generosity. Um, I will sometimes hear from people in the community that they're not sure their religion supports organ donation, and we always encourage them to have that conversation with your religious leader. Um, The research shows us that all major religions do support organ donation, but have that conversation with those people that, um, you know, in in your synagogue or in your church, and make sure that it's the right decision for you. Make an informed decision. Right. Um, so we've covered quite a bit in terms of donation. Let's let's take the other part now, and that's the the transplantation. Mm-hmm. And we hear a lot also uh, in the news sometimes that perhaps, well, we've already learned from you that you're never too old to donate. Are you ever too old to receive a transplant? Are what are the criteria? I mean, age limits. Is there gender, race, health status? Uh, how does that work? So, a patient's health status, and in some cases, the age of the patient, um, are factors that are considered. Surgeons will only perform a transplant surgery for patients who are healthy enough to undergo the procedure. Um, so that will sometimes come into play. We know that um, transplant. People who are in need of a transplant are very ill, and so we know that they're sick, and that's why they need this to go to undergo this surgery. But if they're not healthy enough at the time that an organ's available, they will not um, proceed with the surgery. Uh, and transplant centers might have an upper age limit; however, that's discer- determined by the center itself, and the decision whether um, a patient is listed is decided on a case-by-case basis, and the surgeons are very involved in that decision. So when you say they make that determination. So do they have this this list then? I mean, uh, how, and um, that they see everything and then make the determination when an organ comes available? I mean, talk a little bit about more about that process because I'm sure people wanna know, because I know Betty's gonna talk about it a little bit later in the second half of the show, but 
how who's who's the final person who signs off on says that organ from that person is going to go to that i mean i think we all myself included want to know yeah. how, how is that decision made that's a great question. So a national system matches the available organs from the donor with the people on the waiting list, and it's based on um, a few criteria. Uh, that includes the blood type of the patients, the, their body size, how sick they are, and actually the distance from the donor hospital. So how far does this recipient uh, live from the donor hospital? Um, their tissue type is important, as well as the time waiting on the on the list. Has this person been waiting four years, or have they were they just listed recently? That does come into play. Um, um, what does not come into play is race, income, gender, celebrity, or social status. Those criteria are never considered. And you don't even know that in terms Correct. of what that? Correct. This is a, a national system that does the matching using algorithms, and we don't have that information available. So you don't know what their social or financial status is either? Correct. Correct. Um, and, but all of that then... but. And who makes that final decision? Is it the director of the, or is it a, a team of people then who come together and assess all of this criteria and say, yep, this is, this is going to match this person? Yeah, so it's actually a federal organization who manages the list, and okay. it's the United Network for Organ Sharing, uh, also known as UNOS. So they have this database that pulls um, pulls the recipient's information and determines who is the best match. And then our staff will do the allocating of those organs based on what the computer match brings up for us. So it's not someone signing off on a decision. Okay. It's a database making decisions based on the data available, um, like we said, blood type, tissue type, the size of the patient, how far they are from the donor hospital, how sick they are. So it's not, you know, someone just making decisions. It's right. a national it's throwing database. something up in the air right. and saying and that and I I wanted to just zero in uh, before we take a break here about that geographical location. Mm -hmm. Is there a mileage uh, uh, limitation? I mean, if somebody has a uh, an organ in Milwaukee, um, would that be somebody that you could still get in time to come here to Washington, D.C., or is it Pittsburgh would be the limit? I mean, right. Help us on that one. So it all depends on the organ that we're transplanting. Um, in the case of a heart, that is an organ that needs to be transplanted right away, and uh -huh. so we're doing that locally. Um, kidneys can travel, and so sometimes a kidney donor um, in a state you know, uh, a little bit of a, a you know day's drive from D.C. could receive that kidney, but we do place locally first before, and then regionally and then nationally. But if it's a heart, it's going to be someone, um, you know, where they can get that heart within four hours. Okay, so it really, the geographical location will also, and the type of organ that's needed kind of makes a determination as Correct. well. What about like tissue or um, eyes? Is that, can that wait around a while or does that one also have to be get, getting there soon? So tissue is different. Um, there's more um, in terms of the expect um, with tissue there we're able to send the tissue to tissue banks who process that tissue and it can be used um, many days, weeks, months later okay. depending the, on the tissues. And the eyes? Mm -hmm. Correct. Same thing? Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Well, we're going to take a short break here. We are talking with Jacolia Ellis, Manager of Media Relations and Communications at Washington Regional Transplant Community, and Betty Graves-Bender, whose husband received a kidney transplant. We're going to talk with Betty in the second half of the program. And you are listening to WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or C-C-A-T-K-W at gmail.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Jacolia Ellis, the Manager of Media Relations and Communications at Washington Regional Transplant Community. And we're going to have a nice conversation with Betty Graves Bender, whose husband received a kidney transplant. Jacolia, I just want to ask you a couple more questions, and then we're going to learn more about Betty and Andy and their story. Uh, I just wanted to clarify, when uh, might older adults not be considered good candidates for an organ transplant? So transplant patients are experiencing organ failure, and oftentimes that means they are very ill but it's important the patient be healthy enough to withstand the surgery. So transplant surgeons won't perform surgery on a patient if there isn't a strong chance for a successful outcome. Um, so that's not so much an older adult, but more is that is this patient healthy enough to be able to undergo the surgery? And if the answer is yes, then they will be able to perform that surgery. And if the answer is no, they will continue to wait on the list until maybe they're feeling healthier. Okay, so again, it's there's so many, it really is much more of a case-by-case basis. Mm -hmm. Would you agree? And I think the other thing, and and that's why it's really great that Betty is here today, is this process for deciding a recipient if they're older or younger and they both need the same organ. Because again, in our youth-oriented society today, we always think, well, gee, you know, a younger person has got 40, 50 years to live, whereas an older adult has maybe 10. Is that an important consideration when you've got one organ and both of these individuals, the younger and the older, have the same need? What happens? So in in the case that you just mentioned, age is not a factor. The organ will go to the sickest patient who lives closest to the donor hospital. Um, So age is not a factor when it comes to adult recipients. The only time age is a factor is when we're transplanting pediatric patients um, due to the size of their body and organs. You you know, if you have a two-year-old patient and um, we've recovered their heart for, for transplantation, you'd want it to go to someone similar in age and size. But it is the sickest patient who's closest to the donor hospital who's going to receive that organ. We don't make a decision based on age at all when it comes to adults. Well, that's very comforting. It's nice to know that. And and in your experience, how common is it for older adults to receive 
a, a transplant and uh, or an organ or tissue or eyes what's been the experience what's the statistics yeah so older adults are transplanted more than any other age group um, and that's because transplants are now an acceptable therapy that extends the lives of patients with organ failure uh, in the past 30 years more than 380,000 older adults have received transplants so that's 50 ages 50 and older um, and then more than 90,000 uh, older adults have received a transplant that were over 65 years old. That's very impressive. So it's and common. It's very common and for it's an older organs adult. And eyes and tissue and that mm -hmm. or all, all of the three. Yes. So, well, then that's a very good segue into talking with Betty. Mm -hmm. um, Betty, let's, let's hear a little bit more uh, about what the circumstances were with with your husband, Andy. How old was he at the time of his diagnosis? And maybe you could tell us a little bit more about his diagnosis. Uh, he was 70 years old when he was initially diagnosed with K stage four kidney disease. And he was officially listed in 2015. Um, he uh, waited four and a half years after being listed. And the doctors were saying most likely his kidney disease was caused by his exposure to toxins when he was a pilot in Vietnam. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. And so, and, and how long ago was that, that when he, I, I know you said he was 70, but what year are we talking about that he actually had the diagnosis? The oh, the diagnosis? Yes. Um, that was in 2012. 2012. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's very interesting about, mm -hmm. you know, to, to quickly share, I have a, a certainly understand I'm a Vietnam era veteran oh, as okay. well. Mm -hmm. So, um, and we often heard about issues that occurred in mm -hmm. connection with Vietnam that turned up later in connection with our Vietnam veterans. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, and, and what was happening then once he was diagnosed, did was it uh, that he was immediately on dialysis, or did that kind of lead up to it, or kind of what was the progress of his disease? Actually, he never um, was on dialysis when he was waiting. We had a fabulous nephrologist who helped him stay off of dialysis until and, and he was transplanted. And, and what was his treatment in between? Did he have any treatment once he had this diagnosis, or was it immediately a discussion of, well, we've got to get a new kidney for you? Uh, it wasn't an immediate. He had to, um, of course, uh, he had regular doctor's appointments and lab okay. work, and so he was he was closely monitored okay. for the progression of the disease. But really, all what you really were told was that there isn't anything that we can be, do in terms of medication or surgery. The only treatment is going to be a new kidney. Is, is well, the only the treatment would be either dialysis or a new kidney. Okay, and I'm just kind of curious, again, as my nursing background, mm. what was the, why more, uh, uh, not any dialysis was he not and was it just one kidney or both kidneys it was both kidneys okay and he had a rigorous diet and he practiced um, good health care and was able to stay off of dialysis okay mm -hmm. so but then then you were told by that he needed a new kidney is that yes is that correct mm -hmm. and yes. so then what was at the time that he was diagnosed you said it was 2012 mm -hmm. and then what was that waiting time for a new kidney what was the waiting time yes it was four and a half years four and a half years mm -hmm. and 
were there any kind of because I think when people uh, are from, are learning about the whole process here, were there any kind of oh almost we're going to get it oh no you don't get it kind of thing or was it just you just were on the list and you had to continue waiting. Actually, um, after he was listed, he received two calls almost immediately. Really? But both times he was a backup um, patient and the, the first person took the kidney. Ah. And we were, uh, he did receive offers uh, from living donors, but they were all um, not viable. And most of the time, because of the concern for the um, donor, the donor's health after the transplant. Oh, so that so. just that's very interesting. So it wasn't just Andy's health, but also exactly. a living donor that what they wouldn't be able to live as well with one kidney, or, right? Or they that? discovered they had some kidney disease themselves, or yes. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Huh. And did you at the time did you know anything about the the donors or were you just told this through some well the living donors of course there were friends and of ours friends and family so we okay. knew about them okay. um, but are you uh, referring to the donors that yeah. the possible donors right. through yes. the transplant centers yes um, they didn't give us any information until he did receive the transplant okay and we were given information about the donor. That must have been quite challenging to have to deal with waiting and wondering when that kidney is going to come. It was, it was. Yeah. Um, what was that like? Well, our life revolved around medical appointments and um, meeting the requirements of the, for the transplant centers. And when we were away from home, we had to be vigilant about um, locating uh, medical facilities and always carrying medication and all of the um, his history. Um, he had to, of course, maintain his kidney-friendly lifestyle and a very rigorous diet. Um, and there was an emotional challenge, too, because, uh, as I said, he did receive calls. And so we would get excited, this is going to be the one, and then when it wasn't, of course, the disappointment of dealing with that. Sure. But I have to say, Cheryl, that it wasn't all, um, the waiting wasn't all a challenge. There were blessings, too, because when people did uh, uh, offer to donate, um, I, I, I never missed an opportunity to talk about Andy's need for a kidney donation. And people were so willing to say they would pray for him. And then they, most people, remarkably, had stories about people they knew that had received the donation. Really? And were doing well. So that was so encouraging to us. So you kept on hoping for that? that Absolutely. And would it be what, a phone call? I mean, did you have to kind of carry yourself cell phone and to sleep carry with it? Or? We did. Absolutely. <laughs> and you probably couldn't travel very much, could you? Or we, could you? Well, we had to be mindful of the distance we were from the transplant centers, yes. Sure. Wow. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and, and meanwhile, was Andy's health about the same, or was it getting worse? It or, was progressively uh, getting worse, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it was, it was um, necessary, from what I'm hearing you say, that you had to start really seriously being on a, uh, up on the list before something serious could happen with Andy. Is that what we you're had saying? to seriously consider dialysis if the an offer wasn't forthcoming, yes. Okay. And were you given any kind of information about available organs? I mean, we talked a little bit earlier, I asked mm -hmm. Jacolia about people with medical conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and and that possibility was was that an option for you that maybe you could get something less than a healthy kidney or what what were you told in terms of what was available well um, Andy has type O blood and there's a big demand for that um, for organs with type O blood recipients. Uh, so we knew that it would be a longer wait. And in fact, in this last year, we were told that there were so many more people with type O blood waiting that his wait time was actually going to be two more years in My. addition to the time he's already waited. But we were given the opportunity to receive a hepatitis C positive uh, kidney. And um, that would reduce the wait time from years to weeks or months. And so Andy was willing to take that risk uh, that he would most likely contract the virus mm -hmm. because there is a uh, cure. And so he said yes, and within days he had received an offer. And what, what was the explanation in terms of the cure? Was he going to get some kind of medication yes, once he, he has, got the kidney? He's taking 12 weeks of medication, three pills a day. And, and and would to counteract the virus is that is that what yes you're, okay um, and so and did they tell you again anything about the donor as as far as who the person was that that had the hepatitis um, well they diagnosis? told us it was a young person who had died of a cardiac arrest all right um, so we we had little information all right but you got the call we got the call once you told and who did you tell actually that that you would accept a uh, a kidney it, the coordinator at the transplant center okay mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. you were willing to accept a, a kidney from someone who had a medical condition in this case right. hepatitis exactly all right mm -hmm. and that suddenly boosted the level where you were on the list Quite a bit. Well, it was amazing because that program had just begun at this transplant center the week before. All right. So um, he was able to get probably the first hepatitis C positive kidney. So you got the call. We did. And what, what happened then? Well, they said you have 15 minutes to make the decision. 15, 15 minutes. minutes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what did you talk about? Well, we talked about, of course, we were comfortable with the hepatitis C, but there was some information that Andy wanted to know. The coordinator said, I'll talk to the doctor and call you back. So we um, hung up the phone, said a little prayer. The phone rang within minutes, and she said, the doctor said, this is your kidney. So I said, are there any backup patients? And she said, no, he's the only one. So within 15 minutes, we're in the car on our way to the transplant center. And the transplant center is where? At University of Virginia in Charlottesville. And you live in? Vienna. In Vienna. Mm -hmm. So you just drove yourself or did you call, nope. an, amb call an ambulance? No, nope, we drove ourselves. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. And checked in? Checked and then what in. happened? Well, um, at four, we arrived at the hospital at four o'clock and he was um, waiting for to go into surgery until 11. Mm -hmm. At 11, he went into surgery. 11 p.m.? Or 11 a.m. 11 a.m., okay. So, um, and all the personnel were amazing in explaining to us step-by-step step what was going to happen. So we felt very comfortable with the whole process. And at 4 o'clock, I said hello to my husband, and who, through the generosity of a donor family, has a new kidney. Wow. Mm -hmm. And how long was the surgery? Four hours. 
All right, four hours, and then he was in intensive care for a while, or? Um, only a couple of hours, and then he really? was, went to a regular room. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And so how long then was he, What did he have any special kind of post-op care? Did he have a big incision? I mean, you know, we always wonder what people look like It really wasn't that large. Really? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So he had excellent care, and... Um, and he was on medication, he of was, course, because he was of the hepatitis. He started medication immediately. And, well, not for the hepatitis at that point. Oh, okay. Uh, they waited until they did blood work to show that actually it was in his blood. He did have yeah, then. Once yeah. the kidney started working, it was right. evident that he had right. the hepatitis. Right, so he did start that medication. Okay. Um, I think the most notable thing and important thing they did was they started teaching us in the hospital how to take care of the kidney when he... Um, arrived home. Explain what, about um, that. Well, he has to take these uh, anti-rejection um, medication, and he, he has to take it at nine in the morning and at nine at night, religiously. Uh, so we had to, and, and there are 26 pills he has to take. So it's not only assembling all those pills and putting them in pill boxes, which they gave us, um, but strictly adhering to that regime. Um, also, we had to know the signs of rejection uh, um, because his, uh, his immune system is compromised. He has to practice good health, um, uh, so he has to be aware of being in crowds or places that he might um, uh, So be he isn't infected. exposed to an infection? Exactly, exactly. Sure. Yeah. Diet? Exercise? Um, well, he's always been very healthy. I mean, other than this kidney disease, this man is so healthy. <laughs> so we were walking three miles a day up until he did, uh, up he until had he was, had the transplant. Wow. And we started walking like three days after he came home. So Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, and I want to share with our listeners that when I walked into Arlington Independent Media, not only were Jacolia and Betty here, but Andy was here as well. And Andy is listening to the program mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I asked Andy that he had the surgery in March, and it's now the end of May. What was the actual date, Betty? Of March twentieth. March twentieth. So two months. He looks fabulous, and he yes. said he feels great. Yes. And mm -hmm. uh, what a wonderful story! And yeah. so he will have to continue this uh, regimen for uh, how long? Well, for the rest of his life, he'll be taking. Um, anti-rejection medication okay. and we are tethered to the transplant center for at least the first year oh, and okay. then we will periodically go back for checkups and lab work okay but from what I was hearing from him when I asked him in my usual nurse fashion he's feeling good and yes and the kidney is functioning normally right yes okay mm -hmm. it, it because it was from a deceased owner it took probably two to three weeks to wake up they said we had fun. We sang Wake Up Little Susie, which your, your <laughs> listeners will probably be able to identify. We know that song. Yes. yes. Everly um, Brothers. Right, exactly. Yeah, sure. So it did wake up, and it is functioning fine. Wonderful. So what would since you had this experience, what would you tell uh, our listeners, both people who are thinking about being donors or are donors already or might also like you and Andy or specifically Andy be on the list what would you share with them I mean this must this has certainly been a journey for the two of you it has been a journey um, we've I would say get a get your black belt in kidney disease um, and always travel with hope 
and ask questions, uh, pursue any possibility for donation, and be positive and enjoy every day. Where did in in this experience, did you meet any other people who have um, who are either kidney donors or um, recipients or even any other kind of organ recipients? Have you met any? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And how was that experience? Was it was it kind of nice to be able to share your feelings and thoughts with others that have gone through the same experience as you? Well, it was encouraging at um, one of the events Jacolia was um, at at the um, Tomb of the Unknown where my husband was invited to participate in a ceremony. Uh, I met many uh, recipients and donors and it was just um, it was just a beautiful thing to be with people who who were so gracious and so um, uh, grateful for the gift of life and it, amazing stories, They're just heartwarming. I guess, I, I, and I think there's one other question that many of us think about too, and it's really directed to both of you. Um, maybe you first, Betty, in in so far as have you had any opportunity to really learn any more about the person who was the donor, the kidney donor? Will you at some point have a chance to meet the family of the the donor? And I guess after you answer, maybe is there an official policy, Jacolia, in terms of that interaction? Because it is so personal, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so maybe both of you could talk a little bit about that because I think people would like to know what that means. So mm-hmm. Betty, we'll start mm-hmm. with you. Have mm-hmm. Have you thought about or have you Will you be given the opportunity, or have you been given the opportunity to meet anyone from the the donor family? We always knew that we wanted to. We were told at our transplant center that we had to wait six months before contacting the family, and that there was a format that we needed to follow, but that they would be there to help us with that. So we definitely intend to do that. Okay, so you know about them, but you just, you have to wait six months since the actual transplant? Yes. Yes. And it sounds like maybe some of it just has to do with dealing with grief and, and wow, there's so many emotions here in terms of yes. both families. Right, that, exactly. uh, mm-hmm. so But you intend to, to follow up. We do. Wow. We do. What a fabulous story, mm-hmm. Betty. I mean, you and Andy are just a real testimonial to the benefits of organ donations. Yes, so, we are so blessed. Yes, mm-hmm. and I'm glad that to have the chance to meet Andy. That was a real thrill when mm-hmm. I walked in the, when the studio. So... So getting back to you, Jacolia, and thank you, Betty, mm. and thank you thank to you. Andy as mm-hmm. well for that wonderful story and for sharing that. So Jacolia, is that is what Betty and Andy are have been told the usual the norm insofar as the relationship between the the the, the recipient and the donor family? Yeah, I mean, deciding to start communication between a donor family and a recipient, it's a very personal journey for everyone involved. Um, It often starts as a way to share information about oneself or their loved one and oftentimes helps in the grief process. Mm -hmm. 
when when someone is a deceased donor and they donate organs or tissues, they will receive a letter from Washington Regional Transplant Community letting them know the impact that their loved one made in death and the, the lives they were able to save. There's no personal information or names given, but they might receive the letter that, you know, your loved one's liver went to save a 50-year-old patient, etc. And after they get that letter, if someone's interested in corresponding with their donor family or a loved one's recipient, they should send a letter to um, our donor family advocates at Washington Regional Transplant Community, and they'll help kind of facilitate, facilitate the anonymity until both parties agree to correspond directly. Um, we recommend when people do decide to, to write a letter that they use their first name only in the correspondence to avoid sharing kind of identifying information such as their address or the transplant center where they receive their organ um, or in the case of a donor family, the hospital where their loved ones passed away. So it's a very personal decision and um, I've met many people that uh, wanted to write right away in the case of Betty and Andy that they just want to know more and, and give their, you know, put their gratitude in words, if you will. And then I've met people that are so incredibly grateful for this life-saving gift, but they're just not ready. Sure. Um, and they might not ever be. And so I think it's just a very personal decision. Um, and that, you know, that's where our donor family advocates and our can, you know, really give that great care and discuss with the families what their options are um, and make sure that everyone is comfortable with it. And I would suspect it's probably all over the map in terms of, you know, what that relationship is or mm -hmm. becomes. And it really would depend on, as you said, which, whether the family wants to stay in touch, the donor family wants to stay in touch with the recipient or vice versa and this kind of thing. Right. Some so, people will write letters right away, yeah. um, which is possible um, with us at Washington Regional Transplant Community and others will wait years and years. And then we've had situations where someone will meet their donor family 20 years later and they actually meet in person and wow. they have a reunion. And you can imagine that you need lots of tissues for, for that event, but it's a beautiful thing. and. Um, a lot of the families that do end up meeting, and again, it's it's gradual, it's not right away. Sure. But years down the road, they might have a relationship with, um, with the family, and it's really nice to see. I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, in our closing remarks, I just wanted to ask you one more time, Jacolia, to what are the, the best resources for older adults to learn more about being organ donors, and after that, what information is available to receive? life-saving organs and tissues and, and that. Can you Absolutely. provide so that? Absolutely. So just to reiterate what we've talked about um, during the segment, people of all ages and all medical histories can be organ donors. So we encourage you to you know, visit our website, beadonor.org, and to get the facts and more information about organ donation. Talk to people in your family. Talk to people that you're friends with in your community and see who's, who's an organ donor, who's not, and kind of just have the conversation, educate yourself, and make sure that you make an informed decision. Um, and it's a decision that you let your family know that these are your wishes. Um, again, another good resource is the United Network for Organ Sharing. Um, their website is unos.org, so that's U-N-O-S.org. And they have a lot of information for people interested in becoming uh, organ donors and also the transplant recipients. They focus a lot in transplantation. Uh, like I said, we are 500 st strong. We have 500 Donate Life ambassadors who are in the community 
every single day in the Metro DC area at health fairs and church events, uh, community events, etc. So just look for the blue and green Donate Life logo, um, and our ambassadors can answer any questions you have. We get all of the questions. There are, there's there's not a question that we won't answer. So don't um, don't be shy. Ask those questions, and and we're ready to have that conversation, which we understand at times can be a little uncomfortable. Um, and again, if your organization's interested in having Donate Life come to your event, you can contact our office. Um, our phone number is 703-641-0100, or they can email contact at wrtc.org. All right. Well, I want to thank Jacolia Ellis with Washington Regional Transplant Community and Betty Graves Bender, whose husband is a kidney recipient, and I'll call him Andy because yes. I feel like I know him so well. And <laughs> thank you both for joining me today. It was extraordinary. And be sure to tune in next Tuesday at 2 p.m. My guest will be Amy Vennett, a registered nurse and nurse case management supervisor with the Arlington Department of Human Services. And she's going to talk about nursing case management in the community. And if you want to hear all or any of the Aging Matters programs, just visit mixcloud.com forward slash aging matters. Quick reminder also that Aging Matters is on TV and the latest episode about yoga and older adults is on every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. and Wednesdays at 6 p.m. on Comcast Channel 69 or Verizon Channel 38. This, these uh, channels both in Arlington or you can just stream it live on arlingtonmedia.org. And as always, I want to thank Antonio Fiorranga for handling the technical aspects of the show. And as always, thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. This month, Andy will celebrate 21 months with his new kidney. He is feeling great, living a healthy life, and when the pandemic ends, plans to resume his efforts to educate the public about organ donation. During this holiday season, when we all need a reason to smile and feel joy about life, I'm pleased to share this heartwarming story. I wish you a very healthy and happy new year. Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org. Thank you.